Well, I have a couple of facts to share with you this morning. According to factzoo.com, which is all about creatures all over the earth, there are 5,000 different species of dragonflies on the earth. Five, approximately 5,000 different species, different kinds of dragonflies. There are 2,000 different species of praying mantis. 2,000, approximately. <laughs> there are 20,000 different kinds of grasshoppers. And there are 360,000 different kinds of beetles. 300, I mean, these are approximate. <laughs> 360,000 different kinds of beetles. Now, according to this source, which I think it, when, it's really quite conservative, but according to this source, there are over a million different species of insects on our planet. And some sources put that number quite a bit higher. But let's just take it easy. Over a million, somewhere in that ballpark, different species of insects on our planet. There must be at least a few hundred or a few thousand out in these woods, I would imagine. So, what an amazing creative world we live in. This is a creative world. These insects all have different coloring, they have different shapes, they have different sizes, they have different kinds of legs, some have antennae. They're all different in various ways. How did they get so different and how could there be so many of them? I'm certainly not an expert. My understanding is very rudimentary, but it seems that they all found different ways to survive in the world. They all found some way to make a go of it on Earth by adopting certain colors or maybe certain ways to find food or different strategies for finding a mate and reproducing and staying safe in the world. They found some way to do that. And apparently they found over a million different ways. Just by the way, this does not include spiders. <laughs> Just want you to know that. This million does not include all the spiders. That's a different group. I'll do some research on that maybe. I don't know. I know some people get a little spooked around spiders, so I didn't want to bring it up. So they all found a way. So I got interested in that idea and I looked up how many kinds of religions there are in the world. Well, it depends on what you classify as a religion, of course. But apparently there are 19 major religions on the planet. And that's counting atheism, by the way, as one of those 19. So there's 19 major religious groups on our planet. But of course, they all have lots of different variations, right? So within Christianity, you have the Catholics, and you have Baptists, and you have Methodists, and you have 
all kinds of different variations. So out of the 19 major groups, according to a source uh, called Religious Tolerance, there are 270 large religious groups on the planet. 270 significantly sized different religious groups on the planet. And of course, they all subdivide too into all kinds of different categories. And uh, one of the interesting numbers I found is that in the United States and Canada, there, Canada, there are a thousand different varieties of Christians in the United States and Canada. And of course, some of these are quite small. You know, there could be a little group somewhere that doesn't affiliate with anyone. They have their own tradition. So um, there are a lot of different religious groups in the world, not quite as many as the different kinds of insects, but an amazingly uh, broad spectrum of groups. By the way, the atheists subdivide too, by the way. There are subdivisions of atheists um, and humanists, you know, you can, you know, I'll have to go into that later. Uh, there was a story about uh, two Irishmen who were both atheists. But they still argued with each other all the time. When they went to the pub, they would get into arguments about religion and about atheists. And it turns out one of them had grown up Catholic and the other one had grown up Presbyterian, but they were both atheists. And the one said to the other, he said, I may be an atheist, but I'm a Presbyterian atheist. <laughs> Think that over for a while, folks. <laughs> Carry that thought home with you. All right. At the Parliament of the World's Religions that 35 of us attended in Salt Lake City in October, 10,000 people from religions all over the world, it was just dazzling to see all the costumes, different colors of robes, different styles of robes, different kinds of turbans and other kinds of head coverings, different footwear, all kinds of beads and other jewelry, and many kinds of religious symbols and imagery woven into clothing and handbags and, and other places. I was thinking while we were there, that we Midwesterners must have looked very exotic, too. <laughs> From some point of view. So where did all these religious groups come from? You know, we don't ordinarily think, especially, you know, if you grow, depending upon where you grow up, you might only be acquainted with one or two religious groups, you know. You either go to the Catholic Church or the, or the Baptist Church, or maybe there's there are some Jewish people in the town or, you know, we, we don't necessarily see all these people in the world. 270 major religious groups. Why so many? And so I want to hazard a guess with you this morning that the answer is not entirely different from the reason there are so many insects on the planet. People banded together for community and for survival and over time, they developed ways to live together, to find mates, to raise children, to grow food, 
to protect themselves from enemies and try to somehow make sense of this beautiful world that we find ourselves in, this beautiful world which is also very dangerous and confusing sometimes and mysterious. And so part of their banding together was to come up with understandings of why the world is as it is and how we can, how we can stay courageous and positive in the, in the struggle for survival. And so these groups created stories about how this world began and to explain the powerful forces of nature going on that ruled their lives. And they developed rules that promoted survival based on their experiences. In a, and they, they did this in a pre-scientific world. They, weren't, they, they didn't have, they couldn't look it up on Google, you know? They, they developed stories and rituals from their own experiences and developed rituals for birth and death and choosing mates and hunting and warfare and for celebrating the cycles of the year and for just celebrating the great mystery that surrounds all of us. How do we acknowledge that and, and somehow pay attention to it? So they told stories as all people do and some of these stories were so compelling that they became the stories of that people. They became special, they became sacred, they became their sacred stories. They were authoritative. They were true stories in some deeply felt, intuitive way, in the sense that they gave meaning to life and fulfilled our deep human need to make sense of the world. And so we're told from people who study the history of religions that they started acting out the stories. That, was a, that was, became part of the festivals, is that you have the stories that are most dear to you and you act out those stories. Now, lest you think that's something primitive, I just want you to think about what we do when we go Christmas caroling every December and people put on the antlers You've, some of you have done that, I've seen you. Are we put on the Santa Claus hat and we become Santa Claus? We enter in to the story and we find joy in that. There's, there's fun in that and there's meaning and it connects us to the world. We bring trees into our houses. Why would we do that? Why? That's not a common thing, you know? because there are powerful stories that tell great truths about life. And so this, or something like this, is thought by many to be how the great religious groups began. They were ways to hold life together, to create meaning, to explain the mysteries of life and death, to tell where we came from and where we're going. And for the most part, they didn't even call that religion. In most of these societies, there wasn't any word for religion. It's just what, that's what we do. You know, it's solstice time. We do this feast at solstice time. And it's also important for us to understand that these groups developed many different stories, different rituals. They had different feast days and they had not all the same beliefs. They had 
different myths and practices, and even different ethical systems. The advent of science changed this game somewhat because many of the old stories were challenged about not being factually true. And in reality, that's probably true most of the time. But we human beings have this deep need for meaning. And many of these stories do still have power on that level. They still speak to us in powerful ways. Part of what's happened, I think, in the last part of human history in our scientific age is a tendency to overgeneralize about religion. I read sometimes, or I hear, religion does this, or religions claim this. But there's a tremendous variety of religious groups on our planet. There's Hindus and Buddhists and Jains and Zoroastrians and Wiccans and Muslims and followers of Shinto and Judaism and Taoism. And all of these groups are subdivided into all kinds of variations. Not as many as the insects, but there's quite an array of possibilities. Do you know the UUs are subdivided too, by the way? We have in this country Unitarian Universalists, which is due to the merger of the Unitarians and the Universalists. We also have some uh, uh, groups that uh, identify as Christian Unitarians, and there's also some groups that identify as Christian Universalists. But when you go into Canada, there aren't Unitarian Universalists because they never merge. They're just Unitarians in Canada. Same thing's true in in England and, and in the other speaking countries like Australia. So there are subdivisions within our group as well. And then in Transyl there's a whole kind of Transylvanian Unitarianism as well, which has its own character. So if we say religion does this, or religion does that, or if we say Religious people don't believe in evolution, for example. That could well be an overgeneralization. As a matter of fact, it might not be true at all. 80% um, of Hindus believe in, I don't even know if believe, they, they accept the reality of evolution. 80% of Hindus in the world. That is just slightly less than the number of atheists, by the way, which I came out, I think is 87%. So, it's a vast array of possibilities in the world. Not all religions have a personal monotheistic God, and some have no God at all. And yet we often assume that every religious person believes in God. That's not a true statement either. 35% of all the Christians in the United States refer to themselves as born again, and 65% don't. They have a different understanding of what that means. So, when we think that all religious people think the same way, it's kind of like if we find an unusual beetle out on our deck in the summertime, and we say, oh, it's just a bug. That category, bug. <laughs> well, it is a bug, but it's not 
an in-depth analysis of what that creature is. The choir sang the song today, Follow the Drinking Gourd, which comes from the era of slavery in the United States. It's part of a genre of spirituals that describe how the slaves survived in a hostile culture. And it's part of a bunch of songs that have to do with how you survive in a culture that is enslaving you and has essentially no respect whatsoever for your worth and dignity. And so these songs, these spirituals, are all about how to survive that. And as a matter of fact, the drinking gourd is uh, the Big Dipper. And if you follow the drinking gourd, you follow the Big Dipper, that shows the way, how to find north, and that shows you if you're out in the woods trying to escape to freedom, then you follow the Big Dipper. So they're full of encoded messages about how to survive. And these messages have very practical dimensions, and then they have the angels and different kinds of uh, beings from the great stories. For the slaves, the Exodus story of the Hebrew slaves was the most powerful story because it, it told how the slaves got away from slavery. And it said that God would help them do that. And so this is, was a tremendous sense of hope. So stories in religion are multi-dimensional and they're subtle and they have many meanings at the same time. When the song says the angels would be watching over, it says we should be hopeful. We should have faith that we're going to make it. That's what the angel is saying in that song. Well, you could say, well, there aren't any angels. But there is hope. See, there are different realities that are spoken about in this kind of language. The same message would be echoed in Martin Luther King's message of the civil rights era, and he would talk about the promised land, about Pharaoh's army, a power in the universe leading to freedom. I grew up in a church when I was young, wonderful people, but it wasn't the path that I needed. And part of what bothered me is it seemed to me it was more like Pharaoh's church. It was where Pharaoh goes to church. So religion is often about survival. It's about how do we find hope and meaning and how do we stick together and how do we relate ourselves to some larger reality that gives us a sense of connection to the whole world. And yet the stories and the circumstances are different. It might be the Jewish people struggling to survive the Holocaust or the Mormons who crossed the Great Plains to make it to Utah. Diane and I have Mormon relatives, and they tell these stories about crossing the Great Plains, the migration to Utah, and it was a profoundly spiritual event for them. 
I'm not suggesting that we need to agree with every religion or give a pass to religious groups when they behave badly. Not at all. There's a group out there right now called ISIL, or it has other names too, which is an obvious example of a religious subgroup gone into a completely disturbing and terrifying pattern of violence. There is no religious justification for that. There is no way you can justify that. And we should not be reticent to say that. That's one subgroup gone off the rails. But it is good to remember that they are a subgroup. It's good to remember that and not to overgeneralize or think that they represent all of Islam, just like Fred Phelps doesn't represent all Christians. Karen Armstrong, who's a well-known religious writer, argues based on interviews that many of the ISIL fighters do not practice Islam that they're not observant Muslims at all, a fascinating idea. Living in a polarized society as we do, I think it's wise not to fall into oversimplifying what other people and other traditions are doing. Do we think that all those who live in a certain town are mean and hurtful, like the guy in Amy's story? Do we think that all Christians are anti-gay or that all Muslims are terrorists? Neither of these are true. This past week, Amy Pop and I, along with some other UUs, went down to City Hall and we were part of a big group photo. I don't know if some of you saw us on TV getting our picture taken. The photo was organized by Imam Kamil Mufti, who spoke here just about a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago spoke in our church. And in the photo, the Muslims are in the center of the group, and then they're surrounded by all kinds of other people, a lot of them clergy from different traditions. So I had my robe on, and, and uh, we had Gene Sloan was there as a representing Buddhist, and we had at least one pagan. We have di different kinds of Christians. We had a couple of rabbis. We had a Catholic priest. Um, we had white people, African-American people, straight people, gay people, clergy, lay people. It was a beautiful thing. And if you missed it, we are going to be on a, board, a billboard pretty soon. There are going to be two billboards up in prominent places in Peoria, and you'll be able to see us in all our glory <laughs> as we bear witness to treating all people with respect. In this case, particularly against Islamophobia. So we all gathered together to do that. It's just a, a beautiful moment. Many of us in this photo are personal friends. We know each other. We trust each other. We support each other across boundaries of race and religion and tradition, and we see a larger picture where we're all bound together in common cause. I love the particular path of being a Unitarian Universalist. I have found my religious home in this tradition. And I am happy here that anyone can be a humanist or a Christian or a Buddhist or undecided. 
A lot of people like that undecided path. That freedom is a precious element of our particular path. Part of our human path of survival in this time of human history is to appreciate the dazzling spectrum of belief and unbelief on planet Earth. Not to judge quickly, but rather to assume whenever we can that the people in the other village are friendly, good people. Until we have some good reason not to assume that. That should be our starting point. Is those people over in that village are, are good people. To meet the challenges of our time, we're going to have to evolve into a greater sense of cooperation, less suspicion, more friendship, and less war. At the Parliament of the World's Religions, I remember feeling like I could walk up to any person out of those 10,000 people and speak to that person and expect a friendly response. I just felt that way. And I have felt that in this church as well. That is the life I would like to live. All engaged together in the great challenge of the well-being of all of Earth's creatures, creating ecosystems of health and well-being on this planet. That vision does not have to be framed religiously. It can be framed in a non-religious way as well. But it is important to note that it is present in the great religious traditions. And it is deeply imprinted in us by all the myths and stories that this life is possible. It is available to us. And so it is now the time to make that real. <laughs>